Let's open our Bibles once again to Mark's Gospel as we continue to work our way through Mark. And we come now to chapter 4, beginning with verse 35. Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 35. The Lord Jesus has delivered four parables, and now we begin with a section that uh, brings four miracles. Let's bow before our sovereign God and King. O triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, we pause to fellowship, commune in prayer with Thee. We commune with Thee, our Heavenly Father, in Thy love, everlasting and eternal, reaching all the way down into time and space to save us from our sins, sending Thine own Son, with whom we also, O blessed Lord Jesus, have communion in Thy blood, shed for us that provides reconciliation, that redeems us, that has satisfied the justice of God, that enables us now also as redeemed and saved to walk according to those things which Thou hast taught. And in Thy resurrection life, O Lord Jesus, we commune with Thee. Blessed Holy Spirit, we commune with Thee the third person of the Trinity, we commune with Thee in Thy life-giving power, in enabling union with Christ, in granting to us persevering grace. And we are thankful, one God in three persons, the true and living God, that Thou art the giver of the Word. We rely completely upon that Word, this revelation of who Thou art, without which we would not know Thee. And we humbly ask that as we turn to that Word now, we would reverence Thy name by the heart's attention that we give to it. And we ask that the Word of God, especially this morning, would encourage saints who sometimes feel in this world battered and beaten and are in need of the calming word of the Lord Jesus that we read in this historical account, this miracle that Jesus performed. But Father, there certainly are among us those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that their hearts would be opened and that they would find in Him their only complete and sufficient Savior from sin and Lord of their lives. And we ask these things with humility and reverence that Thou wilt be with us now as we turn to sacred Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Mark chapter 4, we begin with verse 35. This is the Word of God. On that day when evening had come, He said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. 
and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, from the kingdom parables, Mark now turns to these four miracles in which Jesus shows himself to be the authoritative power over everything that is hostile to God and that opposes his people. Jesus will be shown to be the sovereign over wind and sea, over the realm of nature, over demonic powers, over sickness, and even over death. And the passage before us is openly miraculous. Miracles in the New Testament, in the Gospels, miracles are a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Since Jesus is the Son of God, come to earth, he came miraculously, and the kingdom of God, his saving rule, has broken into time and space through him. Isn't it what you would expect, would expect that when God becomes man without ceasing to be God and comes into this world, we would see miracle confirming the inbreaking of his kingdom? Now, almost everyone looking at this passage notes that it was written from the perspective of an eyewitness. The verbs in this text are very vivid. There is a precise time note. There is an unnecessary reference to other boats that are in the area. Uh, The location of Jesus' position in the boat, uh, that he was asleep on a cushion, uh, that his disciples, when they cry out for help, in their bewilderment, are awestruck and respond to Jesus' miracle in such a remarkable way. So, as we come to this text, we are very privileged, you are very privileged to be very near the scene, to be a part of this record of Peter's preaching that was recorded by Mark. And so as we come to this text, the first thing that we see is that Jesus brings his disciples into a storm. You might think, Pastor, did I hear you right? Jesus went with his disciples and there was a storm. But, Pastor, the way you put it was Jesus brings his disciples into a storm. Yes, you heard it correctly. He brings his disciples into a storm. The evening came, and Jesus desired to cross to the other side of the lake, leaving the crowd. The disciples took Jesus just as he was, it says, in the boat. Incidentally, we are told again, other boats are about. It's an authentic reminiscence. We aren't told specifically why, but it doesn't take much to surmise why he goes to the other side. He goes for another 
ministry opportunity. He goes to have a break from the crowds. He's tired. He's exhausted. But he's also bringing them into this storm. This we know. He has come to do his Father's will. We know that his steps are ordered of the Lord, and he is leading them into a new opportunity to know who he is, to experience his power, to understand his love. Yes, Jesus leads his disciples into the storm so that they may learn who he is, and that has not changed. This is an historical event, but nonetheless, it is still true that the Lord Jesus Christ is leading his people into those things, hard though they may be, that will enable us by his grace to understand more and more who he is, what he is like, what it means that he is the Son of God and our Savior. Young people, it is more important that you know the Lord than that you have an easy life. And you will face hard things. The Lord is leading his people in those things. Those things are not by chance. We do not live in a chance universe. Now, the Lake of Galilee, or Sea of Galilee, this huge Sea of Galilee, still is infamous for its sudden storms. An open fishing boat was excavated by archaeologists in Gnosser in 1986, I think it was. The boat was dated from between 100 B.C. and 70 A.D. And so the very boat that was excavated might have been a boat that was used on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus was here in his earthly ministry. And when the excavation took place, it received worldwide attention because the only way that we had known anything about these ancient fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee and other places in the ancient world at that time was in the New Testament itself, from the writings of Josephus, from uh, Roman mosaics. But now they had found an actual boat, and they excavated it and found that it was a, a small craft that would have held up to 15 people. So we have 13 in this boat as we read this passage today would have held 15 people, the very low sides of the boats, these fishing crafts, would have made them totally defenseless against the kind of storm of which we read in this passage. So all is quiet. And then, suddenly, the wind began to rage, and the boat, literally translated, it says, the boat was being filled. Remember, the low sides, and the boat was being filled. Leading us to the second thing we see in the passage, the disciples panic. Verses 38 and 39, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still, And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. So the boat was being filled. Imagine the alarm, an hysterical cry, we are perishing. Very obviously, they could not bail out the water. They could not go back to shore. 
and there was nothing that they could do. And so they were in that awkward position in which we often find ourselves as well, that is so very difficult, so hard, but so necessary for understanding Christ, knowing Christ, trusting Christ, loving Christ, that awkward position of realizing that we are powerless. They were taking on water, and there was not a thing they could have done about it themselves. Left to themselves, they would drown. And both Mark and Luke used the term lilops, which could actually be translated whirlwind. And so they are in the midst of a storm. I mean a storm. A whirlwind of a storm. Now, some of you already know Every time I think of this passage, every time I read it, every time I preach it, there are three things that come to my mind. And I'm going to tell you every time. The first, of course, is Rembrandt's The Storm on the Lake of Galilee. Now, whether he should have painted Jesus in the back of the boat in the stern is another question. We'll set it aside. The point is, it was painted, and thousands of people have seen it over the years. The sky is dark. The tackle and the rigging are torn, the sail is tattered, the winds obviously are mastering this tiny little fishing boat, it's about to capsize, and a number of the disciples gather with this terror upon their faces in the stern of the boat around Jesus. Someone has said that Jesus is the eye of the storm. And I think that's being presented in that painting. And the only other figure that's in the painting that Rembrandt painted with this text in mind is a figure, a man, who's holding to the rope and holding on to his hat, and he's looking directly out at you, the ones who are looking at the painting. And art historians tell us, of course, that that was a self-portrait of Rembrandt. He was obviously saying, I too am in the midst of the storm, but I'm not panicking because I do know who is in control and who is in the stern of the boat. The other thing that comes to mind always is uh, Debussy's La Mer, the sea. Uh, one of the first things that Vicky and I did a number of years ago when we first knew one another, was to listen together to uh, an album, remember albums, of Debussy, and listen to La Mer, The Sea. Play that for your children. What vistas of imagination are there for children who will listen to such music to which they should be exposed. But you can hear in the music the crashing of the wind and the, 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 uh, the waves, the the. The, the astounding power of the storm. And then another thing I think of is the description of Dr. John Broadus, John A. Broadus, who was one of the founders of Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. When he and others were on an excursion in Israel, and he is there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee with his party, they are 
tired, everything is peaceful. We are safe and quiet and happy, he wrote in his diary. Here's some excerpts. Presently I look across, all the southern part of the lake is now clouded with rain already heavy at the south end, but, but opposite I see the summits of the mountain range standing out very clear, indeed bright in the evening sun which shines over the clouds upon them. And oh, look, look at Herman. Oh, look, 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 friend, at Herman, Mount Herman he's talking about. All words fail to tell how brilliant, how gloriously radiant. I gazed and gazed in a very agony of delight. And so I was thinking, so sometimes with the dying, when all around is growing dark, they turn their eyes in a new direction and suddenly bright transporting rises the vision of another world, splendid with unearthly glories, blessed, rapturous, overwhelming. I could not see the wonderful mountain now for tears that came. It's so beautiful, this great man is weeping. New and loud bursts, the rain increased, the tent invited, new and loud bursts of thunder, and as I look forth, the water of the lake is leaping high from something more than raindrops on the tombstones here just before me, large hailstones are rebounding. The tent, too hastily erected, shakes and leaks, and I arrange our beds so as to protect them, then sit down near the tent door to gaze, white caps now on the lake, and surf beating on the shore, thunder very loud and abrupt, lightnings forked and many-colored. The northern part of the lake now obscured, the vision of Herman gone, as the hail subsides there passes between me and the shore a great flock of black goats and some sheep herding from the hurrying from the fields to shelter, but too late the shepherd calls, the shepherd dogs bark loudly, urging the stragglers along. The storm rolls off north to northeast. Dr. R., one of his companions, has stayed out through it all. We rejoice much at having seen it, having got here just in time. What a blessed thing for a New Testament scholar, not to have been on the lake, thankfully, but to have been on the shore and to have seen one of these great storms that surely reminded him of this passage. In such a storm, even these seasoned fishermen were afraid, but Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Mark mentions the cushion, by the way. It's one of those details. But you see the contrast, don't you? The sailors are panicking. Jesus is sleeping. They are terrified. Jesus is asleep in omnipotent tranquility. The disciples speak sternly to Jesus. Moffat translates this, Teacher, are we to drown for all you care? Williams, in his translation, translates it, Teacher, is it no concern to you that we are going down? And so they speak. I would say they speak rudely to the Savior. Yes, they're terrified. Yes, they are afraid. Yes, we understand why they spoke as they did, but nonetheless, they spoke rudely to the Lord of glory. I would say it was cruel in a certain sense. Had the Lord not shown them who he is, had the Lord not cared for them, had he not loved them, had he not watched over them, they yet did not know how cruel they were. 
that he had come into the world to die in the places for 11 of them and save them from their sins. And yet after the cross, we still, even more cruelly, knowing more, having a complete canon, the work of the Lord in our lives, after the cross, we still say to the Lord when things are hard, Lord, do you care? And when so tempted, why not think of Romans chapter 5, verse 8? God proves His love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. No matter what happens in life, we have something that the disciples at this point did not have. We have a crucified Savior who died in our place, who has proven His love to us, who rose from the dead. He has proven His love to you, people of God. And therefore, no matter what happens, no matter what comes in our lives, how can we doubt the love of Him who bore God's wrath for us in our place? He has proven His love once for all in the cross. Now, Calvin makes the observation, they ought to have believed that the divinity of Christ was not oppressed by carnal sleep. And to His divinity, they ought to have had recourse but they're still learning who he is. And so their fear was immoderate. Their fear was not theologically determined, not theologically located, not theologically driven. And after all, the Lord knew their hearts. Not all fear is contrary to faith, but fear that takes possession of our hearts rather than the promises of God. Fear that takes possession of our hearts rather than God's word. Fear that so possesses our hearts that it displaces the Word of God. That is sinful fear. And he awoke, leading us to the third thing that we see. And that third thing is, Jesus is in sovereign control. Complete, utter, absolute, and sovereign control. Verses 40 and 41, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And so our Savior, the Lord Jesus, simply rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, quiet or shut up or very literally translated, be muzzled. Be muzzled. The word peace, by the way, is not in the original. But he does speak peace to the situation. I think it's an appropriate translation. Be muzzled. As if nature in its totality at this point were like some howling wild animal. And Jesus puts a muzzle upon it. Do you remember back in chapter 1, verse 25, when the Lord Jesus heals the man with an unclean spirit, that these very verbs are used, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. Two of the verbs that are used right here in this passage again, which has led some exegetes to think that behind this storm was the demonic 
and that when he speaks to the storm, he is actually speaking to the demonic realm that is behind the storm. After all, they want him dead. They do not want the Savior to live. They do not want his disciples to testify to him. Well, I cannot know for sure, but nonetheless, we do know this. Jesus, who is the Lord of all nature, spoke to the sea. Not, says Calvin, that the lake had any perception, but to show that the power of his voice reached the elements which were devoid of feeling. Be silent. It is a perfect imperative passive. Be silent. It's a command. Be silent and remain silent is the meaning of the verb. And what do you think? Immediately, all was calm. Literally, again translated, the waves grew weary. They could not withstand his voice. Now, there was a German scholar whose name was Weiss, New Testament scholar, in that vein of those scholars who can't get away from the miracles that are in the New Testament, but they cannot believe or will not believe the miraculous, and so they try to explain all of them in naturalistic ways. And Weiss said, when he was expounding this to his uh, students, it's an astonishing coincidence The storm happened to lull at the moment that Jesus spoke. (laughs) To which A.T. Robertson responded, some minds are easily satisfied by their own stupidities. (laughs) Now note that Jesus addressed the wind and sea separately. But I think we're reading it properly if we see that the wind and the waves ceased calmed simultaneously. So the wind is silent and there is no disturbance in the sea. Now, if you have been anywhere near or on water when there's a storm and the storm passes through, there's not an immediate calm. But evidently there is now an immediate calm and the lake is like a mirror. We are to think of the silence and the complete calm at once because Jesus did this. The Lord of glory did this. The Son of God become man did this. And he did it for the glory of his Father. He did it for the good of his disciples. And he did it for you sitting here this morning hearing this text read and expounded for you to apply to your life. Because the fourth thing we see is, who is this? Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? They are saying one to another. Who is this? And they were all filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples are coming to understand slowly, surely, that this is the Son of God. 
as was revealed to us in the very opening words of Mark's gospel in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The disciples are coming to understand this. Now, with your Bibles in your hands, we can answer the question, who is this? You can answer this question. First, any Jew would know that there is only one who can still the wind and the waves, and that is the creator and Lord of the universe. Psalm 65, praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Psalm 77, verse 16, when the waves saw you, O God, when the waves saw you, they were afraid, indeed the deep trembled. Psalm 89, verse 9, you rule the raging sea, when its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 107, 23, through 30 that Pastor McDonald read to us this morning, did you notice? Some went down into the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the ways of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they had quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven." Who is this? This is the personal living God who is involved in our lives according to his will and controls everything in our lives for his own glory and our good. Second, to be specific, this is the Lord who controls the cosmos. Jesus uses verbs here as I mentioned, that he used in the casting out of demons. So he's sovereign over devils. He rules the universe. He subdues all that opposes his sovereign rule. With the word of his command, miracle shows that this world is going somewhere. The miracles of Jesus show what this world is going to be. Now fallen, but then redeemed. The future breaks into the present, breaks into time in the miracles of Jesus. Something of the new heavens and the new earth is showcased in the stilling of the storm. And then a third thing. Have you ever stopped to think that every miracle is an overcoming of death? Every miracle of Jesus, every miracle in the New Testament is an overcoming of death. Since every miracle addresses the results of the fall of Adam, every miracle of Jesus tells that he is life. And since every miracle is also a foreshadowing of the cosmos and its end-time restoration, 
And since the new creation is inaugurated in Jesus' resurrection, every miracle of Jesus is an exercise of the resurrection power of Jesus before his resurrection even had taken place. Every prophecy, says Wardlaw in his old book on miracle, every prophecy is a miracle, every miracle is a prophecy. The prophecy is a miracle of knowledge, the miracle is a prophecy of power. And indeed, here, in this miracle of power, we have a prophecy of what the world is going to be, where he is leading this fallen world. And so the disciples, understandably, were awed. Who is this, they asked? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the Son of God. Peter, Andrew, James, John, this is the Son of God. God, the second person of the Trinity that became man to die on a cross and rise from the dead and and rising inaugurates a new creation. This is the Lord of heaven and of earth who rules and reigns over all men all things, even the devil himself. And he is the Lord, listen, he is the Lord who can be and should be trusted. Having calmed the storm, Jesus said to his disciples in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still, see that little word still, have you still no faith? Shouldn't they have learned by this time, having been with him, having learned the secret of the kingdom of God, Jesus himself, having seen his miracles, having heard his teaching, shouldn't they not have learned by this time that this is the Lord who should be trusted? Because you see, they're learning something about their hearts, that faith is not just intellectual assent. It is that. There must be an intellectual component to all true faith, and hopefully that component grows. But true faith is not simply intellectual assent. True faith is trust. It's reliance. Calvin defines saving faith so beautifully in the Institutes when he says, now we shall possess a right definition of faith if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 40, when he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In spite of everything, my call upon you, my miracles, my teaching, my self-revelation, are you still unbelieving? And so it's a loving reproach, which in itself is a call to the disciples to trust and believe in him. Now, you are not at all allegorizing if you apply this miraculous historical account to your own lives. 
interpret the text in its grammatical and historical setting, and having done that, by all means, apply it to your life. The Gospel of Mark was almost certainly written in a time of bitter persecution. And surely, as they read this, they would have applied it to their lives. Very early in Christian art, one of the symbols of the Christian church became the ship. And we can understand why. Persecution, storm-tossed, bitterly persecuted, yet still in the boat, safe in ultimate terms, in the power of the one who calms the storm. So, believer in Christ, so are you. You may cry out, as did the disciples, and say something like, Lord, what are you doing? I'm completely surprised by this storm. I was not expecting this. There was calm, then the storm. What are you doing? Hopefully, your theology, you know that this is not by chance. God does have a purpose in it. What are you doing? He may not calm the storm when you might like. He might not calm the storm in the way you would like. Some storms in this life he might not calm at all. But he can calm your heart. He can give you trust in him. The Lord of heaven and earth who became man and calmed the wind and the waves rules in your heart and in your life as well. And so they took him, it tells us in the text, to the other side just as he was. What does that mean? I think what it means is in his exhausted state. He's true man, just as he was. He'd been teaching and working miracles. He needed to get away. They took him just as he was, tired, needing sleep. But now they begin to realize there's something else here. Do you know? This should bring greater awe into your life than any storm. Verse 41, they were filled with fear, they were terrified. And what true piety is, is the combination of love and reverential awe and fear. Early in the ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, so many people were coming to hear him preach the Word of God that they outgrew the New Park Street Chapel. And while they planned to build a new building, which became the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in the south of London, they met in Surrey Music Hall in the, in the, in the Surrey Gardens. And in the evening, they met at Exeter Hall. Soon after they had begun their services on one Sabbath morning, as Spurgeon had um, led in the opening psalm, as they had had their scripture reading and on which he would comment, and he was coming near the time when he would open his text, read the text, someone cried out. Now, we're talking about thousands upon thousands of people in the music hall there in Surrey Gardens on a Sunday morning. Someone cried out, fire! Someone else cried out, fire! 
someone cried out, the gallery's falling. Well, none of that was true. But there was a stampede. Were there people who wanted to discredit his ministry? Were there people who just wanted the crowds to be panicked because that's how they got their malevolent fun? Were there people who wanted to pickpocket them? We won't know, I guess, until the day of judgment. Seven people were trampled to death. Many, many others were damaged and hurt in and, and hospitals. And Spurgeon went into a deep, 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 deep depression. Would he ever preach again? Talk about a storm in life. Where is his call to be a minister of the gospel now? And he was in the garden, days upon days of this agony in his soul. He had gone to the hospital to see those who were, he had visited with families whose loved ones had died. He was in utter agony. It was the Bible, this relationship between faith and the Word of God. What Jesus says and in him in whom I have put my trust. This inseparable connection between the Word of God and who Jesus is and whom I trust that delivered Charles Spurgeon. And in his garden, pondering these things, the name of Jesus, just the simple name of Jesus came to him. That powerful name, that beautiful name, he shall, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And the Lord restored this man's heart, and he returned to the pulpit. And in the grace of God, there possibly since the days of the apostles has not been a ministry so blessed with the conversion of multitudes throughout the globe as the ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The point, you see, is not simply that he can still the storm. He might choose for now not to still the storm. He's sovereign in that as well. The point is far greater. The point that is far greater is simply the answer to the question, who is Christ? There's something here and in your life that is more important than the storm. More important than me more important than my life's problems, let your problems, your troubles, the storm, turn your attention to Him. Let your attention be turned to the question, who is this? Sovereign over wind and waves and over the storms of life. Who is this? People of God, He is the incarnate Lord, the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who miraculously came into this world to redeem you from your sins. Never, ever in your life allow yourselves to become numb to that reality, to fail to be filled with joyful, reverential awe at who this is. 
This is the incarnate God. This is the ruler of all nature. He is your Savior. And He calls upon you to trust Him. And He is deserving of that trust. Amen.